John chapter 11, starting at verse 17. If you would follow along with me. This is the most important thing we're going to do in our worship service this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing... She was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? Some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. We're thankful this morning for the word of God and for all the treasures and the depth that is present in it. This is our second part of looking at John chapter 11, and this is certainly the longest part The series, just simple title, The Resurrection and the Life, because this is what Jesus says of himself. This is the fifth of, I believe, seven different sayings of Jesus that begin with, I am, in the Gospel of John. 
And whereas John in the beginning sets out, and especially in chapter 20, he clarifies to us that his purpose is that in hearing this gospel, this good news about Jesus, we might come to faith. We see that that coming to faith is entirely wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. That he is, as we've seen in other places, the bread of life. That with him is the living waters that can bring life. And that he here is the resurrection and the life. In the second part of looking at John, I would call you this morning to rest your faith wholly in the one who is the resurrection and the life, anticipating the glory of God. When I say resting your faith wholly in the one who is the resurrection and life, I mean W-H-O-L-L-Y. That is the entirety of your faith. To not leave it in any other place. To let it rest where it belongs. It's fascinating that what Jesus says, again, in this I am statement, is not a matter of saying, I am the one who has the power of resurrection, who has the quality or the quantity or the ability to give life. He identifies himself as the resurrection and the life. And definite articles are important, aren't they? I am the resurrection and the life. Definite articles means there is no other. There is no other apostle. There is no prophet. There is no teacher who can come up to us and say, I am the resurrection and the life. Yet we must tell others who the resurrection and the life is and let them know that they are able to have resurrection and have life in him and thus anticipate the glory of God. That matter of anticipating the glory of God is something that came from last week. If you look earlier in the Gospel of John chapter 11, you see in verse 4, Jesus saying to his disciples after hearing that Lazarus was sick, that this illness does not lead to death, but rather, rather than death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So we need to keep that anticipation of glory as we rest our faith in the one who is the resurrection and the life. And this is surely what Jesus is calling the two sisters to do in light of the death of their brother. Funerals today and funerals in the first century were very, very different. The reason for calling a funeral would have been exactly the same. Someone whom we love has died. Jesus was called to come see Lazarus in the, our passage last week when the sisters sent to him and said, he whom you love is sick, carrying the weight of the potential of death, that there was an impending end that they saw coming, and they wanted to make sure that Jesus, who loved Lazarus, would be with him. And this is indeed what we are meant to do in a funeral. What's strange is how we have moved away from calling things funerals and started calling them celebrations of life. Now, in our hearts, we can resonate with that, can we not? Who wants to get dressed up in all black and go to a place where we're just going to be sad about somebody dying? Who wants to emphasize the, the focus of their day on death? Nobody wants to do that. And as human, human, human culture has evolved and shifted their focus and shifted away from God, they've started to look at something like death and said, what if we could find something good in this moment? And the only good thing that we could find are the things that came before it. So in so many cases, you go to a funeral 
And the person who is leading it might at the very front of it say, this is not a funeral. This is a celebration of life. I've even been to a funeral where the person leading it was wearing a Hawaiian floral shirt. At the request of the deceased, interestingly enough, but to emphasize this very thing. A celebration of life. What's tricky is that if we don't have our faith wholly in the one who is the resurrection and the life, we have nothing to celebrate. Our memories are sweet, but that's all they are. I don't know about you, but I spend so much time looking at old pictures, um, mostly from my phone. You know, there's any day, any given day, we could take 10 to 15 pictures of a five-year-old or a two-year-old. And it's so fun to reminisce. But those memories are so different than the actual presence of that person, are they not? It is a wonderful thing that we can capture memories with pictures or with letters or things like that, but they're only the shadow of the person who has left us. And so it's very hard to rightly understand a funeral as something to be called a celebration. Sometimes we substitute with the word memorial. Again, because funeral has the stink of death all over it. Memorial may sound more proper, more acceptable, more hopeful. Let us remember these things. Yet what the Bible calls us to do, even in the book of Ecclesiastes, the most depressing book of the Bible, you should read it sometime. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 4, Solomon, who was the head honcho, he was the most glorious king of Israel, full of wisdom, abounding in riches, had anything and everything he could ever want. And he says... In verse 4 of chapter 3, that there is a time for mourning. There is a right time for us to mourn, to not mask it by saying, no, we're just going to be happy today. But to face the reality of death in our lives. Now, in the New Testament, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that he doesn't want his church, he doesn't want believers to mourn or weep as the world does. That is to say, not to weep with no hope. So our mourning is allowed, and we are called to it, but we are also called to mourn in a different way than those who do not know the resurrection and the life. We mourn with the hope that Jesus one day will restore all that was lost and all that was broken, all things that are in him will find completion and redemption. But it's not as simple as just saying either mourn or hope. You have to do both. This is the struggle when we are in times where we face death or even just in times where we face different challenges or trials in life. Interestingly, at the beginning of this passage, we have another note that when Jesus arrives, he finds that Lazarus had been dead already. Let's see. In verse 30, I'm sorry. Where did we even start? We were in verse 17. He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And that's significant The theology of the day, the understanding of the soul and the body was that on the fourth day, as the body began to decompose, the soul that had been hovering over it for three days looks down at the face and sees that it's different and gives up all hope of returning to the body. That's not in the Bible. It's just kind of like some of the folk theology of our day, you know, some of the things like how we handle things like guardian angels. 
There's really nothing clear in the Bible that teaches that we are all born to have a guardian angel. That's not to say that God's angels don't interact and, and affect the life around us. But sometimes we build ideas about God apart from God's word. And this is one of those things. So on the fourth day, if there was any hope that perhaps Lazarus could come back, it was completely gone. So time is very important. The fourth day would have been the end, but it would have only been the true beginning of mourning because with that in everyone's mind, they're thinking, all hope is really lost. We have no faith that he could ever return to us at this point. And, and we see from the, the large crowd that comes to gather around Mary and Martha, Mary and Martha are a rather um, rich family, really. They were able to hire people, as many did in this time. They were able to hire people who would actually come just to mourn and to wail in loud and very theatrical ways. And this was done in order to kind of give a sense of importance to the person who had died. There would be musicians as well. It's very expensive, but they were able to do this. It wasn't entirely a, a show, to, so to speak. What we see from Mary and Martha is a deep love and affection for their brother. And they had lost him. Death has a devastating impact on our hope. It has a devastating impact on our life. Nothing is ever the same after one person that we love dies. So we need to rest our faith wholly in the one who is the resurrection and the life. And we need to not anticipate that the only thing left for us is hopelessness and more despair as, as more people around us eventually pass on, but rather to see that there is an anticipation of glory, just like we see in Lazarus's story here today. I want to give you three things at the front here to consider about what Jesus came to do. If you like to write things down, short little sentences. First of all, Jesus came to teach. Do you remember from last week how he waited? When he heard that Lazarus was sick, he didn't say, all right, guys, Lazarus is sick. This is really important. This takes priority. We need to put down everything that we're doing and go to Lazarus. That would have been understandable. That was what they kind of expected to do, and yet he waited. He waited until he had already passed away. Jesus came to teach, and that is the primary text that we have for that is in verses 25 and 26. If you look at that again with me, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What kind of insensitive person comes to a funeral to teach? Jesus, as we see in this passage, is no insensitive person. Because Jesus, who came to teach, and clearly then from the fact that we see that he came to teach, we can know that he has a purpose for our suffering. Jesus also came to mourn. So we know we have a sympathetic Savior. That's why we read together from Hebrews 4 this morning. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who is in every way tempted as we are, and yet without what, church? Sin. The one difference in your humanity to Christ's humanity is sin. That's it. Jesus, the Son of God, was fully divine, is fully divine, and also fully human, 100% both. You can't wrap your head around that because there's nothing to compare it to. He was totally unique. And yet, in his humanity, his human nature, we see multiple times in this passage that he came to be a sympathetic Savior, 
not to come in unfeeling and cold and say, listen, there's something you need to know. I, I didn't come because there's all this teaching I need to do. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't set up a classroom. He's called the teacher. Martha calls him that. There's an anticipation that in his presence you will learn things. But it is not apart from mourning. Look at verse 35. This is what every kid in youth group wants to memorize, right? The shortest verse in the Bible. Do you know it? Do you have it memorized? Jesus wept. This is not a slight tear that rolled down his cheek. The Greek gives us the idea that when Jesus wept, he burst into tears. He came to teach. I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? But he also came to weep. He came to mourn. John shows us the increasing heights of Jesus' sorrow, that he, like us, has this full human experience, that the pain doesn't get better over time. Sometimes it gets worse, doesn't it? Sometimes we miss our loved ones even more than when we first lost them. And through the story, you see Jesus increasing in his sorrow as he talks to Martha, as he talks to Mary, as he sees all the mourners. He's not apart and unfeeling. He who is unchanged by the ways of humanity is not unfeeling towards the ways of humanity. See, when we mourn, we lose something. Something breaks down in us. And yet Jesus, in his perfect humanity and perfect divinity, is able to do the mission that he was sent to do and sympathize with us in our weakness. I don't know about you, but I've never met a person who does that perfectly. A pastor, a teacher, a counselor. And we ought to freely admit, hey, look, I can't do this perfectly. I want to sympathize, and I want to be able to teach and help you along. But Jesus, in this great mystery of his godhood and his humanity, perfectly balances those things out. That's one of the most amazing things we see in this passage. Verse 36, the comment by the Jews is, do you see how he loved him? What showed the love of Christ for Lazarus? Was it his excellent teaching? Not most immediately. To an onlooking world, it was the sympathizing Savior that they noticed loved this man who was passed away. His weeping showed the crowd his love, and so we ought to as well. We ought to show by our bearing burdens with one another. Not that we should be that hired person that shows up to the funeral to wail and to make a big scene, but rather that we should, in the quietness of our hearts and in our communication with each other, when we are burdened, when we are hurting, when we have especially lost someone, we should be those who are able to come alongside, not immediately open up the Bible and say, here's what you need to do, just believe this, and I'm out of here. But to say, this is what God's word says. But it also says that Jesus wept. He did come to mourn. He came to teach, he came to mourn, he also came to resurrect. So we know we have no other hope. That's why we sang about Jesus being our living hope. That's why we sang about the power of the cross that you see so clearly in this. This is the last sign in the Gospel of John, the last miracle, the last wonder. John's very particular. There's only a handful of them. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us a lot of those things, and that's the purpose in their writing. But John's purpose is to take this last sign and to show us that it has an immediate, it becomes rather an immediate parable to what Jesus is about to do to accomplish true salvation, to show that he is the resurrection and the life at the cross. So in this, we see the revelation of the glory of God that he mentioned in verse 4, that we assume he passed on to Martha. There was a message given to him, he whom you love is sick. Jesus' return message, the sickness is not to death, but for the glory of God. So in verse 42, then when, he, when he's there with Martha, and Martha asks this question, hey, what, what sorry, this is verse 40. In 39, when Martha says, hey, Lord, by this time there's an odor. It's the fourth day. There's no hope. Please don't open this. Please don't give us hope. He says, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Do you see how in this story, faith precedes the miracle? Believing. Not, not in the way that we have made it happen but rather faith precedes the miracle in the sense that the person that we know who is doing the miracle is the resurrection and the life, is our living hope. But, but that faith before is not awarded by the miracle, and it is not in any way complemented. Rather, that miracle creates a greater deal of faith. We didn't read it, but in verse 45, many of the Jews who had come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in him. John's very particular. When these things happen, when Jesus does a sign, he points out when people believed. And that was the fruit of this end goal of God's glory. And yet, we find in it our weakness. That our trials and our grief, in one sense, actually can weaponize our emotions to compete for our faith. Because the fact is, just in opposition to what our culture kind of presents as faith, in this sort of nebulous, unrelated way. You know, have faith, just believe. Believe in what? Believe in whom? The Bible calls us to put our faith fully, wholly in the one who is the resurrection and the life. Because the Bible recognizes that in humanity, we are prone to put our trust somewhere. And our trials, our grief, and especially these moments of death of loved ones can enable our emotions to compete for our faith, for the placement of our faith. Look at verse 33. I know we're jumping all around in this passage, but you get the story is pretty straightforward. In verse 33, you might have a note in your Bible. Listen to this. When Jesus saw her weeping, that is Mary, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This this word deeply moved has greatly troubled me this week. I have been trying to figure out how to present this to you in the most helpful way, and I just decided to let somebody else do it. So listen to what Bruce Milne says. See, this word deeply moved in English comes from a Greek word that actually talks about God's anger, Jesus' anger in this passage. Deeply moved literally translates to indignant. This is why we need to look up Bible words when when we're studying God's word. That's not to say that this is a bad translation, but there's something on a deeper level that the Greek word kind of helps us with. So Bruce Milne, uh, Bible commentator, says that there are dimensions of Jesus' emotions. And this is kind of hard for us, but if if we really think about it, particularly, I don't know, it's easy for me to think about it in the context of parenting. 
you know, when your kid doesn't listen to you and you have to correct them with words that they don't necessarily want to hear, you disobeyed, you didn't listen, this is your, your punishment, you have a timeout, you know, whatever. They hear all these words that they don't like, and my five-year-old particularly right now has many times come back to me and said, I don't know if you love me in light of those things. That's hard to hear, isn't it? Because we know when those words escape our mouths, they're not coming from a place of hate. They might be coming from a place that, that there is some emotion of, of anger or, or impatience, and we need to temper those things. We need to keep those things in check. But at the same time as doing a disciplinary action or, or, or using disciplinary words, we should be coming from a place of love. Those two things seem very contradictory to a young mind. And unfortunately, in our culture today, we've confused love with acceptance and tolerance, haven't we? It's hard to imagine that someone in the, the modern mind is, is, finds it hard to imagine that someone could possibly love someone else without approving of everything in their life. So it seems the easiest thing for us to do in understanding Jesus' emotion here is to understand it as anger at two different things. First of all, he's clearly angry at, angry at disbelief because faith is the fruit that he's looking for in all of this. There's a reality that his indignance before these people who are mourning, is we have to recognize that he's mad that they don't believe. You can go to Matthew 23 if you want to see another instance of this, where he even weeps over Jerusalem, but also condemns those who are not believing at the exact same time. This may seem bigger than a disciplinary conversation with your five-year-old to you, and it certainly is, because we're talking about the mind of God here. This is difficult for us because he's looking at immature faith in Martha and in Mary, and he's indignant. He's looking not only at immature faith that we see in Martha. Martha has an amazing testimony of who Jesus is. I don't know that, that many Christians today could say about Jesus what Martha said. Look at uh, verse 24 with me, please. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Good, got it. Here's your eschatology. Here's your end times theology of Martha. I know that there will be a resurrection. Then in verse 25, Jesus corrects her. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Do you believe this? Verse 27, Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. All those things are right. All those things are true. But there's an immaturity about her faith because she needed to learn that in Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Secondly, when we come to Martha in verses 29 and 30, Jesus finds a disbelief or a lack of faith that is overcome by emotion. See, whereas Martha has this great statement of faith, Mary doesn't follow up her line, the same line that she shares with her sister, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She doesn't follow it with that same expression of faith. She, she follows it by following, falling on her face and, and just weeping. She's overcome by emotion. And the Lord has no desire for our emotions to overcome our faith. Remember, he rightly understands our emotions in good context. It is good for us to mourn. It is good for us to weep. But we cannot let that weeping overcome what we know is true. Both Mary and Martha have this beautiful statement. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They're not rebuking Jesus. They're not saying, why weren't you here? They're in the midst of their grief, they are coming up with the best expression of faith that they have. 
And you need to remember from the rest of Jesus' teaching that faith like a mustard seed can do what? Can move mountains. I mean, he's very clear that the strength of the faith is not the primary issue. The primary issue is where your faith is placed. And certainly Mary and Martha have their faith in Jesus, but they're not yet to the level where they recognize the depth of who Jesus is. And this is the problem that we face, is that when we lack knowledge of who Jesus is, our disbelief can very easily eclipse our belief. So Jesus is angry at disbelief. There's another very obvious um, understanding of his anger. He's also angry at death. He's angry at Satan. He's angry that death has so demolished the world, the good world that he's created. We can understand this, can't we? I don't know if you've ever felt actual anger at a funeral. But this is what, where Jesus is. He's angry with the way the world is. And he's particularly angry with the enemy of the souls of his people, the devil himself. What Hebrews says, he who holds the power of death, he who laughs at a funeral rather than mourns, has created anger for Jesus. Last week we saw that our problem in regards to our faith is that we stumble in the dark when we don't have a clear view of the purpose of the trial that we're facing. And this week we see in Mary and Martha, though they have great expressions of faith, clearly their faith is in Christ, we see the matter of immaturity of faith and the matter of faith that is overcome by emotion. So I wonder, which one of these do you struggle with? Which one of these is a hard thing? When your faith is the weakest, is it because there's, there's missing information? There's, there's an immaturity. I mean, to one degree, we're all immature, right? In one sense, none of us will be perfected until Christ returns. But there is a real sense that in some cases we need to say, wow, you know what? It may be that I don't know Christ as well as I ought to in order to get through this trial, in order to see these things rightly, in order to mourn as those who have hope. Or perhaps we're like Mary, where we're simply overcome by emotion and our emotions dictate all of our actions, all of our faith, everything that we do. In that mixture of grief, grief and faith, we need to look to Christ. Because we know that what we know often loses out to how we feel. It's so necessary for us to fortify our faith before trials come, so that we're ready when they do appear. Maybe right now, you're like, I'm not worried about the immaturity of my faith. I'm not worried about being overcome by my emotions. Good. Fortify and strengthen your faith. Strengthen your understanding and your relationship with Jesus now. Because inevitably, trials will come. Inevitably, grief will come. Inevitably, we will face death. And we can learn so much from Mary and Martha in this passage. J.C. Ryle, a preacher in the 1800s, says that these portraits of these characters in the gospel show us the saints just as they are, and therefore show us just how we are as well. Mary and Martha are not strangers to our hearts, are they? But, says Ryle, vague and indefinite views of Christ become the cause of our weakness of our faith, of our immaturity, this anger in Jesus' heart is not the anger that you ought to be so much better than you really are. But it is an anger at the effect of sin in our hearts. It's the parent who says, I told you not to do that. You need to listen to me. Do you not hear a parental tone when Jesus in verse 40 says, 
Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Are you forgetting what I've said? How little we think of God's word and how clearly we see how little we think of it in the midst of trials when our faith is overcome. So what does Christ do? In the midst of all this sorrow over Lazarus, he comes in, I'm the resurrection, I am the life. And after his weeping, when the challenge is laid, set before him in verses 36 and 37, you see how he loved him? And then other Jews say, well, couldn't he, just like he opened the eyes of the man born blind, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Couldn't he have kept him well? That's the challenge laid out before the Son of God. Is he able? Is he truly the living hope? Or are these the limits of his power? Super interesting in Sunday school this morning, thinking about how we are so limited, and rightly so in a lot of ways, that God does put limits. There was a garden in the, cre- in the beginning. There was a garden. That was the limits, and, and there was meant to be an expansion of that, but there was already the sense of being near to God is what we need more than anything. And limits that are placed on us are done in order to keep us near to God. And yet, Christ is limitless. And he appears, Calvin says, as God's champion prepared for conflict. In all the things leading up to the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus perfectly keeps his emotions in check. Yes, he's angry. He's angry at unbelief. He's angry at death. He's angry at Satan. But where is he angry? He was deeply moved in his spirit, that is, in his human nature, in his character, in his inner self. He was deeply moved. He was angry there. But what was it that we saw? The outward expression of that anger was not turning over temple tables in this case, though that was right at the time. But here, he expresses that by weeping, by sympathizing, by mourning with those whom he loves. He spoke no stern word to his people in this case. Though there was disapproval, he came in to fix it. And again, as Calvin says, he came as a champion prepared for conflict. As God's champion, the one who God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Look at what he's going to do. You are looking at the ground. You're looking at the tears in your eyes. You're you're looking at your hands are covering your face. You're mourning. You need to look at Jesus. He's the resurrection. He is the life. Look at what he's going to do. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? To Martha, he is patient. Like us who are those who have young faith. To Mary, he is patient like us when we are overcome with emotion. But to death, he is the ultimate adversary and death's perfect victor. I love that, I don't really get into boxing too much. I really like the Rockies movies, but I love this phrase that is often used in in UFC or in boxing where they say, he rearranged his face. Have you heard that before? in that when he went into the ring, he looked one way, and in coming out, he looked a completely different way, right? His eyes were lined up perfectly right here. His nose was right here, and when he comes out, one eyeball's down here, and the nose has moved over this way for some reason. Totally rearranged his faith, and I'm sorry to say, that's what came to my mind when I was thinking about what death looked like after Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. When Jesus says, whoever lives and believes in me will never die, he's redefining death. He's rearranging the face of death because we mourn at funerals rightly because there's an ending. But we don't mourn like those who have no hope because those who have no hope say, this is the ultimate end. I'll never see this person again. There's no hope for restoration. And I'm going to face this death someday too. What am I supposed to do? 
Death has been defeated by God's champion. It dramatically has been defeated. It looks dramatically different. It is redefined to those who have faith in the one who is the resurrection and the life. And so when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, the glory of God is shown in the power of Christ over death itself. It's been said many times that if Jesus didn't specify Lazarus, when he said, come out, all the graves would have opened. And we know that's true because Jesus says in John 5 that there is a day coming when the dead will hear the voice of God and rise up. There is a resurrection coming. This last sign that creates faith before the cross was most fitting because his disciples are sorrowful. They, are de- they feel defeated before death. And to see Jesus defeat death would set them up perfectly, you would think, to receive what he did at the cross. That when he went to death, death could not hold him, Acts 2.24 says. When Peter's preaching, he gets it after the resurrection. He is the resurrection and the life. And God raised Jesus Christ because it was impossible that death could hold him. Peter is able to preach that way because he dove deeply into who Jesus is. And so ought we. He who died on the cross died to justify us, to make us right with God, so that death could have no hold over us as well. What he did at the cross was not something to give you a leg up so that you might be right with God in combination with your own works and making sure that you follow the rules. The good news is not that Jesus fills in the gaps and fills the blanks so that you can be right with him. His righteousness is credited to your account. Your bank account was at zero dollars. His was at a billion, gajillion dollars. And he transferred all of it to yours and took the empty account for himself so that we might As he says, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Notice the order, whoever lives. He doesn't say whoever believes. You know what, I'm going to do all this stuff, but I just need something from you. I need one little thing. Give me some faith. No, you don't have faith. You don't create that on your own. Faith comes by the one who, as Jesus said in John 3, is born again. You can't make yourself born again. That's why Nicodemus said, How does a man be born again? Does he enter a second time into his mother's womb? He's thinking, what am I supposed to do? Jesus is saying, nothing. You can't do anything. You need to be born anew. Whoever lives, whoever is born again and believes, that is a response, people. It is important for us to believe. That is an action on our part. But our faith is created when we look to the resurrection and the life. When we take that moment to see him for who he is, so that when he says, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That believing is just looking to him. Because basically that's what he's saying. Martha, Mary, look what I'm about to do. And he lifts up this amazing prayer that's not a prayer of, Lord, please, please, please let Lazarus come out. What does he say? Lord, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of those who are around me, I said these things so that they might believe. His purpose is so clear that they might believe that you sent me. And so when he said these things, he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, and he does. You don't hear in the story Lazarus peeking around the stone saying, Jesus, you forgot, I'm dead. I can't come out right now. The stone is rolled away And Lazarus comes out because he can't do anything else. He doesn't choose to come out at that point. He comes out because he's commanded to. 
And that new birth and that faith that happens simultaneously, those who live and believe, happens just like what happened to Lazarus. Lazarus becomes a parable for salvation for us, that we might understand that our salvation is not of our own works, but it is just like a man standing in a graveyard saying, Lazarus, come out, and he comes out. So, we ought to then live in the confidence that death has been redefined in Christ. Not to say that we should now accept, yes, celebration of life, yes, memorial. No, let's have funerals. Let's mourn. Because death stinks. It is hard. It stings, doesn't it? But we know that that sting is not permanent. The sting of death has been dramatically changed. It is so radically different. The face of death has been completely rearranged for those who believe in Christ. So live in confidence that death has been redefined in Christ. And walk in the freedom to focus on the glory of God. How will God be glorified in this? I know this was our landing pad uh, last week as well, but it's still here because Jesus is very concerned that you focus your eyes on the glory of God every day of your life. Even when the worst things happen. Because the resurrection in life gives us great confidence to face death and sorrow, we can pursue his glory by growing our faith. With his glory in view, our immature faith matures. Our weak faith grows strong. Knowing, first of all, as Martha said, even now I know whatever you ask of God, he will do for you. Martha's true faith was not in her ability to relate to Jesus rightly, but in Jesus' ability to relate to God on our behalf. Martha wasn't expecting Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. But she knew, man, I don't know how, I don't know what you're going to do, but I know that God hears you, and I can trust in that. Don't trust in how great you are at praying. Don't trust in how much you think God really ought to listen to what you have to say. Trust in the fact that God listens to Jesus. Because there was at least one day this week where God, where you didn't deserve to be heard by God. I guarantee it. If it wasn't one day, it was two or three or four or five. Our faith is so often placed in different places. And yet, even now, I know, Jesus is heard by God the Father. Christ's unique relationship with the Father is my true confidence. And in prayer, I can pray like him. Lord, I thank you that you've heard me. What a great way to start a prayer. Thank you that you listened. Thank you that you knew my request even before I spoke it, even before I realized I had the need. And that we can launch into thanksgiving as we trust him for what we need. Our weak faith grows strong because he feels our sorrow. In the face of death, I have confidence by his spirit to endure. His presence is with me because he's given me his Holy Spirit. His patience is extended to me because his Holy Spirit lives inside of me. And his power is perfect in my weakness because his Spirit empowers me to do all he calls me to do. And so it is for all of God's people. Death is defeated and redefined. We need to realize that in the here and now to live in light of the resurrection because Jesus is with us and he is the resurrection and the life. This is the glory that he's calling us to. So this morning, would you take the temperature of your faith, please? Would you use that spiritual thermometer? Check where you are. Is your faith maturing? Is it growing strong? Is it feeling weak? Is it feeling defeated? Is it feeling overcome by emotions? Because Christ does not have an intention of coming to you and saying, you better get your act together or you're going to be really sorry, mister. 
He comes to you and he weeps with you. He sympathizes with you in your weakness. He's our high priest. He's our one who goes to God on our account. You don't need to know everything there is to know about the Bible. You don't need to know everything there is to know about Jesus. But you do need to know him. He transforms us from one degree of glory to the next. There's no skipping. You're not going to go to church on Sunday and take five steps of faith. You're just taking that next step. Tomorrow, I pray you take the following one. We take baby steps. Remember, right before Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the tomb, he told some people around him to roll the stone away. It wasn't because the stone was such an obstacle to Jesus. He was calling us to participate in faith. Roll the stone away. What was Martha's response? Lord, there's a stink. It's not going to be good. Let's not do this, please. This, this is really not what I wanted to do. We're mourning the loss of Lazarus here. When Martha's weakness is so evident in that moment, isn't it? And it's so relatable. Because when the rubber hits the road and our faith is really, really needed, that's where we start to backpedal a little bit. I don't know if I'm ready for this. Roll away the stone. See the glory of God. Live a life that is wholly devoted to him. And trust in Christ alone, not in your own understanding, but in who he is, the sympathetic Lord, the one who is the resurrection and the life. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your patience and your kindness to us. We thank you that in your goodness, we can know that our hope is not unfounded. It's not misplaced. It's not lost. And though it is weak, it is right where it belongs if it's in you. Lord, if there are anyone, any people here at all who don't know you, who don't have that confidence of a sympathetic Savior, of the one who has come to teach, but also to mourn with us, and who has come to give us resurrection power, to give us a new life, Lord, would you call hearts to repent, to turn from sin, to trust in Jesus wholly, not in their, not in their own works, not Jesus plus anything, Jesus alone. And we trust in your greatness, Father, because we know that you are great. That we have no hope besides you. And you are our great hope. We thank you for it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.